welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Pugh, and I'm a program director with Peace Catalyst here in the Washington, D.C. area, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Keith Giles. Yes, I'm Keith Giles. I'm so glad to be here with you guys today, and um, we have a really great episode in store um, but um, before we get to that, I'll just say, yes, my wife, Wendy, and I work with Peace Catalyst here in El Paso, Texas. And um, yeah, really excited to do this podcast with you guys today. Um, real quick, I want to say, uh, if you do enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, uh, it would really help us out if you would do us a favor and take the time to rate and review us on iTunes. Um, and the reason why is that that helps to boost our visibility and it encourages others to give the podcast a listen. So if you would do that, we would really appreciate it. Um, and while I'm, I guess while I'm talking here, let me also say that, um, you know, we've been doing lately these uh, peace quotes of the week, which have been really fun. And it's been fun for us to kind of come up with them and, uh, and kind of find some really great quotes. And um, so the peace quote of the week for this episode is by Henry Nowen. And his quote is this, for Jesus, there are no countries to be conquered no ideologies to be imposed, no people to be dominated. There are only children, women, and men to be loved. Mm, so, so powerful. I like that one. That's really good. And, you know, such an important reminder because we do kind of take on this idea that, um, yeah, that it's okay to be imperialistic towards mm-hmm. other groups of people um, and impose our way on them. Yeah, it's a good reminder. Yeah, it is. Because um, I do think, and I think we touched on this a little bit in our last uh, podcast episode about um, how there's a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. And quite often peacekeepers are more about using force to kind of like uh, coerce people or threaten people into certain behaviors that, you know, it's sort of like a do this or else kind of a thing. And, and, and if you don't, well, then violence will come. And so it's not really about peace as much as, as it is about maintaining some sort of order and control. And that's not at all the kind of peace that we're talking about. It's certainly not the kind of peace that Jesus talks about. You know, Jesus even makes a point about saying that the peace that he gives us is not as the world gives. And um, so we should be on the lookout for the differences. Like, first of all, recognizing they're not all the same. And to see, like, yeah, what what is specifically the kind of peace that Jesus was all about? And it's more than just, I think sometimes we we think that what Jesus means is, well, it's just sort of this peace in your heart. It's like a warm feeling. You feel really good about life <laughs> and all that. And, and sure, it's probably that, too. I don't want to take that away from anybody. But I think it's much more than that. It really is truly a, a peace between individuals, right? So mm-hmm. we live in peace with other people, even if they're different from us. And Jesus certainly modeled that, right? He went out of his way to go to the Samaritan village and meet with the woman at the well. Um, You know, he went out of his way to interact with uh, the Gentiles, with Roman soldiers and um, commended them for their faith. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely more expansive than we might first think it is. And, And I love how Henry in this quote, just helps us, I think, in this quote, see that, you know, if we're following Jesus, it isn't about that power over other people mm-hmm. to sort of 
control them or coerce them like by, uh, you know, military force or police force or even laws and things like that. Um, it really is about, like he says in the last part of that, there's, there are only children, women, and men to be loved. And that in a way, as that seems so simple in some ways and seems in many ways kind of weak, <laughs> but, um, but it isn't at all. I mean, it really is having that realization that that's what changes the world. And, um, and, and love is not weak uh, because God is love. And I don't think anyone thinks God is weak. If anyone has power, it's God, right? Right. Uh, but God is love. And so there's a, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. And Jesus is the one who modeled that loving others and walking in the way of peace through love. So that's so powerful. And, you know, that's what's so awesome about this current series that we're in too with Christian peacemakers, because they are following the way of Jesus in making peace in loving others. And, um, you know, they're pursuing shalom in their own communities walking out that peacemaking informed by their faith in Jesus. So, so cool to see these amazing peacemakers who are just walking out, you know, the way of Jesus. Um, And I love these conversations because they help us understand how we can change the world around us and become better peacemakers ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And so this episode, I'm really, really looking forward to because uh, we are interviewing my friend Bruxy Cavey. Uh, he is the author of the best-selling book, uh, End of Religion, and many others, by the way. I encourage you to uh, check out Bruxy's books. You can go on Amazon and see. He's got a whole bunch of really great books. Uh, he is also the teaching pastor of The Meeting House, which is one of the largest and most innovative churches in Canada. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that with him, about what their church is about and kind of what, what they do there. Um, but uh, let's jump into it. Welcome, Bruxy, to the Peace Catalyst podcast. It's, uh, it's exciting to talk to you again, and uh, especially about this topic that we're going to get into today about peacemaking. Thanks, Keith and Becca. It's a privilege to be joining you guys. Thanks for adopting me into your family here for this uh, episode. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, it's one of the things I love about you, Bruxy, when I discovered you a few years ago. You know, it's like sometimes when you're moving into this peacemaking kind of direction, this is what happened to me. You kind of think you're onto something and kind of you and you discovered something that no one else discovered. And then you meet other people and you realize, oh, no, actually, <laughs> there's other people that have been on this uh, on this path for a long, long time. And, and uh, you're one of those people that I was very excited to discover was kind of already on this page of following Jesus into uh, into peacemaking. And so if you could real quick, just let listeners know who maybe aren't familiar with you and and what you do, kind of load about yourself and, um, and the ways that you are pursuing uh, peacemaking. Okay, sure. Thanks, man. So, yeah, my name is Bruxy, and I'm a pastor of a church called The Meeting House, which grows out of what's called the Radical Reformation or Anabaptism. Um, and my experience was similar to yours, Keith, in that I thought I was kind of tripping onto something and discovering something and figuring something out, this lost gem of the church. And I was pulling an Indiana Jones and I was discovering this thing that had been buried for so long. And then, or climbing to the summit where it's located. And then I realized there's a whole bunch of people already camped out here, which, I, I, you know, it's really uh, encouraging to find out, oh, I'm not alone in this. When it when it first started, this really radical peace teaching of Jesus for me um, was when I used to have weekly 
uh, conversion evangelistic Bible studies with my Jehovah's Witness friends. We'd get together every Wednesday for a couple hours, and I thought I was converting them. They thought they were converting me. Everybody was happy. And we would just like kind of work through different Bible passages. Um, you know, they knocked on my door one day, and I never let them leave. For It was a couple of years. We were getting together regularly. And so usually I think I would come away thinking, I made the best points. But there were times when they would say, hey, Bruxy, all we can tell you is that your church and Christendom can't be right because you will kill each other for the sake of your earthly kingdoms going to war. How can you be the kingdom of Christ? And that would always stop me. And I go away and say, oh man, like this is a good rebuke of the system I represent. And um, I, I wish they were wrong about everything, but they got this one right. Ugh. And so I'd go away and process more. And I came back, I had to thank them and say, you're really introducing me to a better version of myself on this topic. And so I started to do that processing. And I really did a lot of study and came to the conclusion, just rooted in the teaching example of Jesus, that um, that Jesus meant what he said, said what he meant, and that he actually really was calling us to be people who followed his example and were willing to die for a cause, just not willing to kill for a cause. It was just that simple. And um, and so I, I, I started to go through this conversion process, but as I did that, I thought, it doesn't bode well that the only people I know who say they follow Jesus, who believe this, that I actually know in this real world are people who I consider to be part of a cult. I, I don't, that, that doesn't bode well for me. Where do I go for my fellowship? I don't, I'm not convinced that Jehovah's Witnesses are, have, got, have really nailed down the essence of who Jesus is, but they got this one thing right, so what do I do? Um, so I thought, I'm this weird lone wolf for a while. And then kind of tripped on to this movement called the Anabaptists or the Radical Reformers, and um, so around the you know 1500s, early 1500s, we have the Protestant Reformation. On the heels of that, you have the Radical Reformation. And the Protestants said, church tradition can't be in the center. The Bible has to be in the center. And then they were just as violent as the Catholics they were rebuking. They killed heretics the same way. They went to war the same way. They burned witches the same way. Because the Catholic Church could appeal to church tradition, to the teaching of the Pope, the Protestants appealed only to the Bible, but in the Bible, they could justify anything as well. And so the radical reformers came along and said, wait, 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 you put the Bible in the center of our faith. Now we're challenging you to put the Jesus of the Bible in the center of your faith. And that changes everything. And until you make that last step, you do that last maneuver, you actually, it's just been a lateral move. Is it church tradition or is it the Bible that leads you? Both of them end up being violent and, and manipulating power, coercive power. But when you finally go that last step and put the Jesus of the Bible and of the church, who's at the center of both in the middle, it's, it's the game changer. So the radical reformers really um, were and this beautiful inspiration. Of course, they were um, regularly slaughtered by both the Catholics and the Protestants, but they wouldn't fight back. They died. They said, it's okay to die for a cause. We're just not going to kill for a cause. And that inspired me. And, um, and so I, you know, they were really tapping back into the original vision of Jesus and the early church for the first 300 years. And, um, and, and that was great to see this resurgence happen again. And I want to be part of a new generation, whether someone becomes Anabaptist or not, I don't care. I want to be part of a new generation now that sees that resurgence, which I think we're seeing now that says, hold on, this whole Christianity thing starts with the name Christ. How about we keep him in the center of the whole thing and see how that changes everything. Mm. That's so wonderful. I love it. Very beautiful. Yeah. It is interesting, isn't it? How 
sometimes we need to listen to people who are on the outside looking in. Um, and they sometimes have a better window and a better mm. perspective on us than we can have. It's sort of like they see a blind spot we don't yeah. see. It remind, when you were talking about that with the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, I was thinking about, you know, there's a great quote by Kurt Vonnegut. I love Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut would not call himself a, a follower of Christ. And yet he made a really fascinating observation about mm. how, you know, Christians, uh, why are Christians always wanting the Ten Commandments put on you know, the, the, the government buildings and their courthouses and not the Sermon on the Mount, right? And I thought, what a great uh, what a great observation. How come no Christian ever brought that up before, yes, right? Yes. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah, that, yeah. It's so true. And it, and it's interesting. It points out that the, the, the challenge is that Jesus doesn't actually teach us how to rule no. by laws that are enforced yeah. by coercive power. So in order to find something that props up the law system or the, the state as, it, as the state, we need to dip back into the old covenant where the kingdom was a nation and was a state and had an army and had laws and enforced those laws through, through violence. And, and so all of a sudden the church has to do a, do a detour. We're following Jesus. Now we have to do a far, a far right turn and head back into the Old Testament to find the verses we quote and the plaques that we put on our government buildings. And um, and then Jesus has to take a back seat. But it's just so important to just keep reminding Christians again and again, Jesus is not just one more Bible character to which we appeal in this story. Jesus is actually the whole mm-hmm. point of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I like... Go ahead, go ahead Becca. Well, I, I just wanted to comment on that because I recently listened to a clip from one of your sermons. Um, I think the title is Relationship mm-hmm. Over Jesus. And I love what you said about... Um, you were talking about how our liturgy is to love mm-hmm. others as ourselves and um, how that's what Jesus was teaching to his disciples and then Paul later emphasizing that. Um, and... I don't know. I'm just, I love that so much. And I'm curious to hear how you, you as a pastor and your church community, um, you know, practice that or live that out. Oh yeah, that's good. Thanks Becca. It's, it's really true. What you've highlighted there is often missed by Christians is that our entire liturgy of worship is rooted in the relational love of other human beings. Um, it is, it is this pattern once, once it's pointed out, you can go to scripture and now see it everywhere. But sometimes we just seem to miss it. Um, and that is this pattern of uh, scripture, the apostles and Jesus himself saying, as I love you, you would think the rest of that sentence would be, so I want you to love me. You know, I give my life for you. Now you lay your life down for me. That's just how you'd expect the gram- grammatical flow of the sentence to go. But it never goes that way. It's always as I love you. Now you go love others. And so the way we kind of love Jesus back, I mean, when someone looks into your eyes and says, I love you, it, the natural response is, I love you too. But Jesus looks in our eyes and says, I love you. And he wants us to turn away from him to someone else and say, and I love them. And I'm going to go love them. It's this beautiful, take what I'm giving you and give it away. That's how I'll know you really love me. So he says, a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Not love me the way I've loved you. He knows we love him. He's got that. And he'll really know we do when we love the people that he loves. And then the New Testament church picks up on this. Again and again and again. Let me give you two examples. Uh, the Apostle Paul, 
in um, Galatians 5.14 says, this sums up the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up everything. And he doesn't say, you know how Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, then love your neighbor as yourself. He just skips that. He skips the whole first part and he says, this sums up the law. Just love your neighbor as yourself. So he's like, I know you got the love God part down, so I'm not even going to command that or you're just going to get stuck there. Um, Just go love other people and we know you got the God part down. And then John in 1 John uh, 3.16 says, 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid his life down for us and we ought to, well, you again, you would think, and we ought to lay down our lives for Jesus. But no, this is how we know what love is. This is how we actually know what love is. This is how we experience love, identify love, immerse ourselves in love. We accept the fact Jesus has died for us. And now we take that love and we turn and we go and we lay our lives down for others. And that's our worship is outward focused relationally. And God accepts that as worship. And that's the story of the sheep and the goats where Jesus says, hey, um, uh, uh, you you can worship me, you can honor me when you go and feed people and clothe people and take care of people, and I accept all of that as as worship. So, um, this is this is one of the things that at least at our church, we we want to do our best to continually remind ourselves of this. Yes, we'll sing songs of praise and we'll do the churchy thing, but that's really just a a chance for us to recharge our batteries so we can go and worship Jesus in how we're treating others around us. the um, And in order to treat people well, in order to love them well, we need to have a, um, we need, we need to have a, a safe place to practice. And I think that's what the church can be. It can be where we're, we're with people who are on the same page saying, we're all trying this together, right? We're going to love one another, starting with brothers and sisters in the faith. But that's just practice for us to get better at it with people who are all at least agreeing to try the same thing. So we can now go out and offer that, radical love to people who are not agreeing to try the same thing and are not always going to work with us and partner with us and trying to make it easy. Um, so the church becomes this kind of workshop place, I think, to get better at that. So, and so we, I think we just need to continually bring that to our consciousness to remind ourselves that's why we're doing this. It's not just so we can grow in Bible knowledge or have a, a charismatic experience as we sing songs together, which is all beautiful, but it's so that we can recharge our batteries Practice, practice, practice the way of Jesus together so we can go out into the world. And when we go out into the world now, it's a full and complete worship service. Absolutely. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I love that vision of church being a place where we can kind of just practice this whole, you know, loving God and loving others. Um, and And I think that's wonderful. I think actually growing up, I wish I had been a part of churches that that was the focus. Where I feel like um, we mm. we tend to focus on so many other things that are such distractions. You know, we want to define well what is sin and who's a sinner, and um, you know, it's it's or all these other things that we focus on. Even sometimes focusing on things that might be good things, but um, but we mm. end up elevating some of these other things. You know, there's there's so many other things I think we can get distracted by, um, and, and we can get really busy doing these kind of churchy things, but. But if we're not focused on really the, the main things that Jesus emphasized, right? Um, love, yeah. love one another as I have loved you. It's sort of like, well, kind of like we're wasting our time, right? And I think so. It, I, I was raised totally. in a church again, like I said, where this wasn't the focus. And but now that I've kind of discovered, oh yeah, I think this should be the focus. 
Um, I know I know I had early on these questions and other people maybe that if this idea is new to them, that oh yeah, maybe this should be our focus, they can just kind of go like, well, but how do I do this? Like what are the practical ways I can practice um, you know, following Jesus in this way, learning mm. to love others the way Christ has loved me. And 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 what do you think about that? Is it something does it I mean, I think sometimes people think, well, I should join some maybe uh homeless ministry or I should, you know, be a part of some sort of uh, you know, outreach effort. Or or is it that or is it um just more of on a personal level, day by day looking for ways that I can bless people and love people or even, you know, bless people who don't seem to like me very much. Um, I mean, what are some thoughts? Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Um, Jesus thankfully gives us some step-by-step instructions um, and some great vivid examples, um, both in the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke, when he's, he's, uh, he's giving examples of what it might look like given certain situations, you know, turning the other cheek and going the second mile getting naked in court, you know, when you're, you're sued for part of your clothing saying, listen, if obviously I'm poor and you've got the power to take me to court. So if you really are that desperate, I'll take off all my clothes and give it to you. if You're suing me for what I've got. And, and there's a beautiful thing about nakedness within Jewish culture. It didn't just shame the person who was naked. It shames the person who saw the person who's naked. Uh-huh. It, it's like, uh, it's a, it's ethical shock treatment to say, okay, you must really need this, this badly. Jesus never, um, encourages passivity. Um, he doesn't say if someone slaps you on the right cheek, let them. If someone forces you to go a mile, let them. If someone sues you for your coat, let them. It's not how any of those illustrations go. He always gives a creative, nonviolent response that uses ethical shock treatment to 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 kind of put a spotlight on what's really going on here and our humanity. Um, and and gives the perpetrator an opportunity, at least. They may take it, they may not take the opportunity, but at least gives them the opportunity to go, whoa, whoa, I'm, what am I, what am I doing here? What is going on yeah. here? Um, and so with the, with the suing uh, and with the, the second mile, of, you know, the first mile we're forced to walk is slavery. The second mile is freedom, where we say, now I'm choosing to walk another mile in response. You just oppressed me and I'm choosing to bless you back but I do so now as a free person. So now you have to relate to me as a human, not just as a slave, not just as an oppressed people group, but as a human being that's actually choosing to help you. Um, and I'm not, and I'm not relating to you as my oppressor either. I'm seeing your humanity. And, and so there's this beautiful relational gift as they walk that second mile together. And again, the, the oppressor may take that as a gift. They may not, but we're offering it. And it's the same thing with the slap on the cheek. They say, if you're going to slap the one cheek and I turn the other, now you're going to have to hit me instead of backhanded because a, a right hand, he says, he specifies if they slap you on the right cheek, there's a reason for that because that would rep- require a backhanded slap from a right-handed person, which is the slap of slavery. Again, it's the slap of oppression. And so he says, if, if you're going to slap me, slap me like a free person. I'm relating to you, not as my oppressor, but as a human being who wants to aggress against me. I'm a human being. Let's let's have it out if that's what you feel you need to do. There's these beautiful ethical shock treatment moments that um, Jesus, and I think we can use those and say, well, then let's brainstorm along that line. What would ethical shock treatment, unexpected love, unexpected infusion of human dignity into oppressive moments, what would they look like? 
Um, and then that's the creative work of the church. He gives us, I mean, three examples are good examples to get us going, get the Jews flowing and say, okay, now let's start to brainstorm what that looks like. And then there's this other passage that's in Matthew. And then there's this other passage in Luke. Luke says much of the same thing, but then he, he lays it out this way. Um, Jesus says, to those of you who are listening, I say, that is literally to those who have ears to hear, uh, which is worth just pointing out that Jesus is never trying to force everyone to follow this. He, whenever he teaches this stuff, he says, this is for those who have ears to hear. In other words, he's admitting at any given time, there's going to be people listening who don't have ears to hear. And he says, well, I'm not talking to you. I'm not going to force you to do this. I'm just talking to those of you who actually have ears to hear, if you really care. I love this. It takes the pressure off, you know. We don't have to force people to follow Jesus. It's like even Jesus didn't force people to follow Jesus. He says, your day will come. I'll get to you another day. Maybe I'll have ears to hear tomorrow. But right now, I'm not talking to you. So he says, for those of you who have ears to hear, love your enemies. And then he gives them three ways of doing this. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, the people group he's describing are getting increasingly aggressive each time. First, it's just those who hate us. Do good to those who hate you. Then it's those who curse. Now it becomes verbally violent. Bless those who curse you. And then finally, he says, um, pray for those who mistreat you. Now they're actually becoming physically abusive towards you. And he, he points out that as as they're becoming increasingly aggressive, your opportunity to act will actually diminish. By the third time, he says, all you can do is pray. Pray for those who mistreat you. When it's verbal, they're cursing you. He says, well, verbally bless them back. I think the key to all of this is that first stage. He says, when they only hate you, (laughs) when they only hate you, that's your opportunity to be the most active. By the time they're beating you up, there's not that much you can do except pray. But let's rewind the clock to stage one. Stage one is do good to those who hate you. It's the most active stage. And But how, how many of us actually go around trying to find out who really has a beef against us as the church or me because of my gender, my age and stage, my appearance, my ethnicity, my, whatever it is. And how can I find out who hates me? Or maybe it's my personality. It could be personal. They just hate Bruxy, but it could be I represent a demographic they hate, whatever it may be. I'm going to find out who hates me and I'm going to do good to them. I'm not just going to pray for them at a distance. That's stage three. Stage one is actually get into their lives and do things that are kindnesses for them. Well, they only hate you. This is a proactive way of moving into the space of this world that can start to tear down walls and barriers. Again, some people will take the gift and some people won't. We're not accountable for their response, but we're accountable to offer the gift. And I think it's really, it's a really beautiful, proactive, potentially world-changing way of living. That is so powerful. I I especially love what you're saying about the ethical, hmm. ethical yeah. shock factor of that kind of nonviolence, creative resistance. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a reminder that when Jesus is calling us to love others and love our enemies or even our oppressors, it's not in a Mm. passive way. It's in a way that, like you said, says acknowledge my humanity and Mm. see me as equal. Um, So powerful. Yeah. I also love how you talk about how you point this out. Like, even as you were describing that, Brooksy, it's like there's something in me that just starts getting really excited. And I realize 
this is the kind of stuff that makes me love Jesus so much is I, I love this radical, subversive way of, of allowing. You know, when Jesus, Jesus' whole thing was about the kingdom of God, right? And the way he describes the kingdom of God, it's this, it's upside, it seems upside down. Like we, we kind of call it upside down from the world we live in, right? The first yeah. or last, um, you know, uh, you know, th- those, those who uh, give up their life mm. are the ones who find it. Um, you know, it's, it's all these kind of upside down, kind of seemingly backward ways. But then you realize, well, wait a second. It seems, oh, it only seems upside down because it's in comparison to the world we live in. But it's it's not the kingdom that's upside down. It's us. We need to get right yeah. side up again. And Jesus is actually describing something that is the way God, the way God is, the way, what it looks like to live in this kingdom of God. Yes. And um, and it's really exciting. I really love it. And so these, it's recognizing, I think, I think what I hear you saying is that Jesus is saying that when you encounter these conflicts, when you encounter these people that hate you and that want to do violence to you and want to oppress you, that these are actually opportunities. Like Jesus sees this as, oh, good. Here's a chance for the kingdom of God to break through. And here's how it's going to break through. Because you're not going to respond in the same spirit. You're not going to respond the way that they expect you to. Of course, mm-hmm. this is what everybody does. No, Jesus says, I want you to respond in this radical way that brings in love, that brings in mercy, that brings in compassion, that brings in forgiveness, and even proactively does this in such a way it, that it, it literally disarms the other person. I don't know if, you, if you've ever had an opportunity to kind of practice some of these things. I've only had a couple of chances to do this sort of thing. I, maybe I need more enemies. But... Yes. It does work where someone is coming at you and they're angry and you can see in their eyes or maybe hear in their comments on, if it's on social media that they really, really hate you. And then when you respond in a way that blesses them, that genuinely seeks to do them good, like people don't know what to do. They're like, wait, what just it's, happened? And there's the kingdom breaking so in. Two, two stories, uh, uh, two examples. One is really trivial. I was in a public shower at a pool, you know, you go into the change room, you get a shower afterwards. And when I was in the change room after I was swimming, I, there was nobody in the change room and there's three showers. So I figure I can take as long as I want. I go into the shower, pull the curtain and I'm in there just steam bath, la dee da da having a great time. By the time I get out, open the door, uh-oh, there's this, a lineup of, of men who uh, I guess have been there for a while. All three showers are full. And the one guy who's in front of me says, you took too long and I can't believe that you, and he just, <laughs> He, he went off on me and he, he was very rude. He used some bad names and he, and, and it was really harsh. Now, at some point, instead of feeling sorry, I just started to feel upset with him. I wanted to now go toe to toe with a verbal shouting match because he was now crossing the line and just becoming completely demeaning. But I realized he's my enemy and I need to bless him. And I just, I just started to let him know I could see his point of view. I am so sorry. And this must have taken, this must have felt really frustrating. You've obviously been here a while. And this young punk is, I was younger then, this young punk has taken too long. And you and I can see how this would be a real inconvenience while you're waiting to get into the pool and have your show. And I just want to say, I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do to make up for? This, this whole conversation was against emotional impulse. My emotional impulse was to give him a verbal pop in the chops, yeah. you know, because he had really, even though I realized I had inconvenienced him, he went beyond that to kind of verbally beat me up. But when I responded, not according to what I felt like doing, but what I felt is the loving thing to do, he immediately just softened. And then he says, well, uh, you know, I 
I guess it wasn't that long. And uh, oh, I know it wasn't much of a convenience at all. And then he's like, backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. And I realized I just made a new friend, you know, because that's one of the possibilities of enemy love is that the yes. enemy might yes. no longer be your enemy by the time you're done loving them. And that, that that's a miracle. That's a miracle of conversion, of transformation. Right. Uh, and so that's just a trivial thing, but it doesn't matter if you bump your shopping yeah. cart to somebody or you, you know, somebody in traffic cuts you off and they give you the finger and you right. you drive by and blow them a kiss. But if you can find, if you can find ways to just breathe kindness into people's lives, even if that's not what they're breathing back to you, it, it can have some beautiful results. Um, I don't know if you have time for another story. Maybe one illustration is enough. That's my, that's my illustration. Oh yeah. Excuse me. No, no, no. You promised us two stories. Okay, I want right. to hear the second story. Okay. Well, the second one's more dramatic, but I just want to first point out that the dramatic ones may never happen in our lives. They may, but they may never happen. And it's the it's the simple interactions with people, I think, that is, that's where we, we build up that muscle um, when we practice. So that's what's most important. Yeah. But this, this one is just more dramatic, so it becomes more memorable. I was on the streets of uh, Ottawa, our capital city here in Canada, and um, I was talking with some folks, and I noticed a young woman run by not the kind of running, like I'm going to catch a bus, but the kind of running, like I'm full throttle running for my life. And she was a young black woman and her color matters for this story. As I'm talking to these people, I just happen to notice her run by, but I'm not paying real attention because I was talking to somebody else. And then a moment later, I saw a whole gang of white skinheads in army fatigues go running by and they're going full throttle. And something just triggers. Whoa. Something's going down right now. It's not good. I don't even have the time to process consciously. My feet start running. And as my feet start running after them, I think the rest of my body starts talking to my legs and saying, what are you doing? Do you have a plan? Apparently, you're trying to get us to wherever they're going. But, you know, and I think my legs just said to my brain, listen, that's your job. You think of a plan. I'm just going to get us there. So it's not even at the conscious level right now. I'm just running full throttle, trying to catch up. I'm not a fast runner. And by the time I got to where they were, she had gone down uh, around a corner, down an alley, and they had cornered her and they were all around her. She was on the ground and they were kicking I would say kicking the life out of her with their steel-toed army boots. And it was harsh. And I just kept running right up to them. And I pushed my way through the crowd and I leaned over her. And this weird thing came out of my mouth. Because I think even as I'm doing this, like my mouth is saying, have you got a plan? I don't know what to say here. My brain said, I don't know. You say something. Because it was, again, it was not the conscious level. But I just started to say, I said, I follow Jesus. <laughs> and that means two things. Number one, I will not fight you. And number two, I will not stand by and do nothing. So all I can say is kill me first. <laughs> I say this and wow. I think my brain's saying, Mouth, that was the best speech you could come up with. <laughs> like I, I would have <laughs> called that off a long time ago. But I'm like, kill me first. That's what I came up with. But that was enough to completely, where is that in their in their flow chart of how humans react. It just yeah. wasn't. And they all stopped and right. they started talking to me, appealing to me, you know, Hey man, you're a whitey, you know, look, she disrespected us. She deserves this. Why you come on and be on our side. They're like trying to, and I'm like, I, I don't want to argue with you the details. I just want to tell you that you're going to have to kill me and then you can kill her. And, but I, I just can't do nothing, but I'm also not going to fight you. So I'm stuck. This is all I can offer. And 
Yeah. Well, so then they go into this scrum. They're talking about themselves. Well, do we kill the guy? Do we not kill the guy? I don't know. What do we do? Yeah. But now time's <laughs> passing. Other people are calling the police, no doubt. I think they're aware that time's running out. And then they all just disband and walk away. And then um, my friends and I were able to get her yeah. help. Ambulance came. She went to the hospital. It's the, the, uh, the, the story illustrates, I think, the power of actually following the principle of Jesus that says, I'm not going to fight you on your terms, violence against violence. I'm not going to fight fire with fire, we would say. Um, I'm not going to fight hate with more hate. Um, but I'm also not going to do nothing. That's not what it means to be a pacifist, to be passive. It means I want to pacify, and I'm not going to use violence to obtain peace. In the teaching of Jesus, peace is always the way, not just the goal. So we don't use violence to obtain peace. We use peace to work towards peace. And so they didn't have a category for that. That's the thing about the world is they don't see it coming. And so it that ethical mm -hmm. shock treatment that we were talking about earlier can work, and it dismantles the moment. Now, even if it didn't dismantle the moment, I just want to say this as a footnote. Let's say they went ahead and they killed me and her. Let's say that's how the story ended. I still think it would have been a success that I would have done what yes. Jesus had called me to do and I could have entered the presence of Jesus in heaven having died because I was following Jesus. Um, and you say, well, yeah, but you didn't save That's her right. life. Do you really think I could have saved her life by trying to beat up a half a dozen skinheads who are more muscular than I am? And No. So I probably wouldn't have saved her life either way. Um, and, and so in the end, it worked. Yes, it did. And often it will. But even if it doesn't, it's still the right choice. It's still the loving choice. That's right. Yeah. And th thanks for making that last point, Bruxy. I think too often when we talk about this no sort of nonviolent response, we, I, I'll say certainly as, as Western, especially in American Christians and growing, myself growing up, you know, in, in that world, that this idea of nonviolent resistance and loving your enemies, um, we're, we're very hung up on sort of the uh, does it work part of it. Like, um, you know, like, well, nonviolence doesn't work and, this doesn't work. And it's like, well, it depends on what your definition of work is, right? I mean, in other words, sometimes, yes, you may employ, you may follow Jesus in this way and you you might lose your life. You might die. By the way, for several hundred years, the first, you know, the first Christians for the first 400 years, certainly that is yeah. what happened. Um, but was that a failure? Right. No, it was a success yes. because they were following Jesus. Yeah. And, um, and so, yes, yeah, sometimes it quote unquote works in that it disarms the other person and they, they decide not to go through with their violence. And other times it might not. And that is a very real possibility. This is why Jesus says, count the cost, right? Yeah. Go ahead ahead of time and recognize, yeah. yes, following Jesus, you might get hurt. You might even die. But yes. you decide up front it's worth it because um, you want to model Jesus. You want to, you want to have the life of Christ sort of um, spilling out of you in such a way that other people get to experience. And look, it, Jesus died as well. Like it isn't even something that, you know, Jesus escaped this kind of a thing. And it shouldn't be our goal. Our goal, in other words, is not to escape the violence or escape these kinds of things as much as it is to engage it in a way yes. that allows the kingdom of God to break through, that allows the potential, the, the love and the life of Christ to be on full display. At the center of our faith, Keith, you're saying, you've got it right. The center of our faith is, is our Lord who died as what could look like a, an apparent failure. I mean, Buddha, Muhammad, Moses all died as old men. Um, Jesus dies as a relatively young man in apparent failure. 
uh, because he he didn't kill for a cause, he died for a cause, and it changed the world. That's at the center of our faith. He's not just one more Bible character; he's the center. If if no yeah. if we don't get this, who can? This I mean, because he's at the center. And people say, yeah, but he knew he was going to rise from the dead. And I'd say that's our story too. We should know that too. Right. <laughs> We're going to rise from the dead too. Right. So e- even in on the battlefield, you know, if I raise my gun and I'm going to fire my gun at someone, I figure when I die, I know where I'm going. I don't know about him. So I'd prefer he live actually <laughs> give him another day to yeah. get, to maybe discover the beauty of Jesus and the way of love. Uh, I already got that one down. Yeah. Um, so resurrection is our story too. And death is never the end. And so we, we count the cost. We front end load that expectation. Yeah. And I, I love that story. Cause I think the most Christ-like thing about it is that you're willing to lay down your life mm-hmm. for this woman, right? Like that, kind of protective willingness to step in and say, I'm willing to sacrifice myself if it means that potentially you could let, you know, like even if it didn't end up being, if it wasn't going to end up that way, if they killed you, maybe they'd kill her too. But the fact that you're willing to put yourself in that position is so, so incredible. It was a spirit moment because I think if I had been operating consciously, I would have been much more protective of myself (laughs) or would have overestimated. I can, I can beat these guys up or whatever. And, um, thankfully God just bypassed my conscious choice. And it was like spiritual instinct, which I'm grateful for because I think there, um, if I had thought about it too long, it would have gone differently. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this this has been so great, Bruxy. Thank you for just calling us back to this sort of Jesus pattern of uh, loving others as we have been loved. And uh, I, I really appreciate it so much. I appreciate your your books. I appreciate your ministry. Um, and thank you so much just for sharing these stories and these very practical ways that uh, we can kind of put this stuff into practice in our daily life as well. Yeah, thank you, Keith. Yeah, and thank, thank you, you, Becca, for having me. It seems like you got a good thing going on here and I'm really happy to be a part of it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. Bruxy, thank you so much. What a gift. What a blessing uh, to be able to spend some time with you and, and hear some really beautiful examples of what it means to, uh, to kind of live out this this uh, ideal of loving our enemies and bringing peace in creative ways. And yeah, just really appreciate you. Wow. Yeah, that was incredible. I'm, I loved his story of, um, yeah, how he interceded for that woman and mm-hmm. did so nonviolently and just the power of, of how, yeah, how God used that to, um, to protect her and to, to send a message to that group of, of people who are using violence. Mm, Yeah. Uh, It's really, what I love about the story too, is that uh, like he says in the story, um, he wasn't even really thinking about it. It was sort of like almost this reflexive unconscious thing. And then it kind of tells you, I mean, I end up sometimes uh, um, quite often in sort of these uh, discussions with people about nonviolence and how do we practice nonviolence? And you always come up with these scenarios of like, well, what if someone broke into your house and they had a gun to your wife's head? And it's like, those scenarios, discussing those scenarios, you know, completely in a vacuum are really kind of pointless because I can't tell you what I'm going to do if I'm in that moment. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Right. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it's okay, I guess, to sort of play these 
philosophical games of maybe what should I do, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, wake me up at 3 a.m. and I hear a glass breaking and I realize there's someone in my house and what, what am I going to do actually mm-hmm. in that moment when I'm half asleep and I'm in my underwear? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I can't tell you what I'm going to do. Right. Right. So there's a big gap between what I should do and what I, uh, what I would do. But, um, but what's beautiful is to see what he did, right? He did have this sort of automatic reflexive reaction. He wasn't thinking about it. He didn't plan it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's wonderful. And I think, you know, maybe what we should aspire to is to be in, in a place where we are so abiding in Christ and so connected with um, the spirit of Christ that when we're in those moments, well, that that sort of like wells up in us. Like we almost instinctively and reflexively do the thing that Jesus would do. And I think that's yeah. what Brooksy did in that situation. Yeah, that's so beautiful. It's such a good point. And I think, you know, it's it's incredible too, because he, he understood looking at that situation, okay, there's no way I can overcome these men using physical mm-hmm. force. Right. But that didn't prevent him from doing something, which I think is so cool because I think it could be easy then to be like, well, I guess there's nothing I can do. Um, but like you said, because of, you know, Jesus and his faith in Jesus, he he was willing to kind of sacrifice himself and his own safety um, for the sake of, of protecting that woman. And Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, um, the thing... And I think you, you touched on an interesting point, like quite often <clears throat> when this discussion of nonviolence following Jesus into nonviolence comes up, um, unfortunately, I think we have we have very little imagination uh, in the church in the West. Uh, we whenever. So, was, again, I just get these reactions from people like when I start saying, you know, I believe Jesus wanted us to love our enemies and to not use violence and things like that. And then they come up with these scenarios as I was talking about. What about someone has a gun to your head or your wife's head or whatever? Um, and then the assumption is typically from the other side of the, of the conversation that what you're advocating is to do nothing because what you're saying is, well, you're saying you're not going to use violence. Well, that means you're going to do nothing as if those are my only choices. My only choices are to sit there and twiddle my thumbs or to whip out my 357 and blow the guy's brains out. And there are more options between (laughs) that. Those are extreme options, and there is a wide range of possible uh, reactions in the in between, right? Yeah. And um, there's, yeah, absolutely, following Jesus in this way, if we're going to take it seriously that Jesus really does intend, really does mean for us to love our enemies, turn the other cheek, bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us, Pray for those who despitefully use you, like all those beautiful things that he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if we're really going to take those things seriously, if we're really doing that, I promise you, you will not be doing nothing. Mm-hmm. You will be very, very active, active. Uh, certainly in the face of injustice. And yeah. when you see violence and you see people being oppressed and things like that, you can't do nothing. I mean, that's the whole point of Matthew 25, when Jesus is describing, you know, the the, the judgment at the end of the world or whatever end of time. And um, it's those who, those people who saw people that were naked or hungry or in prison, and they couldn't do nothing. They had to respond. They're the ones that Jesus says, hey, when you did that, you did it to me. Um, and that's what we're called to, right? That's what we should aspire to, is that when we see those things, we can't do nothing. Um, but, you know, there, again, it's not, um, it does, what, what, the thing that we do 
can be more creative and more effective um, without being violent, right? Right. And and like you're saying, it's not like a, a passive self-sacrificing thing. Like I kind of made it sound like that, but it's it's like when you <laughs> when you're engaging creatively in nonviolent means to oppose injustice, to oppose yeah. violence. It is. It's exposing that violence. It's exposing that injustice, and it's calling out, yep. kind of, you know, the person who's um, inflicting it. So, yeah. And you know, I um, I did a, I did this conference a few years ago with a friend of mine um, in Ohio, and it was all on um, the nonviolent love of of Jesus. And part of the conference, I had collected online. You know, I'll, but I'll do. I'll try and post these clips in the uh, in the Peace Catalyst uh, Facebook group. Oh, nice. Quick plug there for the Peace Catalyst Facebook group. We have a Peace Catalyst yes. podcast group. Um, so I'll post some of these videos in there. But I, I, I went on a hunt and I found probably five or six um, clips of real stories, like true stories of people who were in situations where a guy came up to them with a gun or a knife and was going to rob them or something. And they didn't respond with violence, but they responded in very creative, beautiful ways. And it completely disarmed the person, transformed the situation, and it became like a really beautiful end result. And, wow. um, and, and so when the thing is like, when you start looking for those examples, number one, you will find them. There are many examples of people who really actually were, you know, I don't know about you. I've never been in a situation where someone came up to me with a gun or a knife or whatever. I've never, I've never been put on me the, either. on the spot like that. Yeah. But, I, but you know, you can find these examples, excuse me, like one of them was, um, this was actually on like an NPR or something. Um, but a real story of like these people were having a, a wine party in their back patio with their house. And a guy kind of like just walked in. It was late at, late at night and he just kind of came in there and he had a gun and um, he was going to rob everybody. Wow. And they all were, they all froze and they like didn't know what to do. And, um, um, oh, oh, that was what happened. I think it's, I'm trying to remember now what happened. It was something like no one had any cash on them they all had like credit cards, right? So no one had any cash. So he didn't know what to do. And they didn't know what to do. And it's kind of awkward. And so one of the ladies says, would you like a glass of wine? <laughs> so uh-huh. he does, he, he takes a glass of wine and he drinks and he's like, Hey, this is really good. And they start talking wow. and then they start asking him a story. He, he starts crying. I mean, it's like uh-huh. this beautiful. And now all of a sudden they're like, they all like are around him, like trying to comfort him and because he's telling them the story of his struggles and what's going on and why he needs the money and da, da, da. Oh and it was gosh. like, whoa, what the heck is that? And there was another one of a guy in New York. It was late at night. He was coming home. It was cold. He got off the uh, subway train. He was walking. Um, well, he said normally what he does, he would get off work and get off the train. It was late at night, but there was a diner that was always open and he would go and get something to eat real quick and then go, then go home and sleep. And uh, as he gets off, a young kid has a knife and is like mugging him. So he gives the guy, the kid, his wallet, and the kid doesn't have a jacket, and it's really cold. He goes, "Well, you know what? You're going to need this." And he takes his jacket off and he gives it to the kid. Wow. He goes, "You're going to freeze out here if you're going to if you're going to be out here with no with no jacket." So the kid puts the jacket on, and then the then the guy says, um, "Hey, I'm going to get something to eat. You want to you want to join me for breakfast?" So the kid goes with him to the diner. They sit in the booth. They order the food, and when the food comes, he goes, hey, I'm going to need some of my money from the wallet because you, know, you got my wallet. I can pay for this. So the guy, so he does, and then um, the guy, 
that he says, you know what? Can I just keep my ID? You can have the money in the wallet, but I need my ID. So the kid gives him the ID in the wallet. Then they start talking and um, he kind of hears the kid's story. He lets him keep the jacket. He goes, he goes, I tell you what, you can keep the jacket, but can I have the knife? And the kid gives him the knife. Wow. It was this beautiful story. I'm like, oh my gosh, see, wow. this is, these are the kinds of things that Jesus would do. Yes. And when I hear those kinds of stories, and there's, I won't tell them all, there's several other ones that, that I came across. That's there amazing. were these really beautiful stories of how people really truly disarmed uh, another person using kindness or just these unexpected you know, um, reactions that really just disarms people. They don't expect you to, to respond this way. Yeah. And it, it totally turned things around. Now, amazing. let's be honest, um, you can do that if you find yourself in those kind of violent situations or threatening situations. You, could, you can go ahead and do that. And you might die. I think Jesus is pretty clear on this, wow. right? Um, following Jesus this way, yes, uh, sometimes it works. And you have a beautiful end result. Well, hey, it worked out great for everybody. Mm-hmm. But it didn't work out great for Jesus. <laughs> be honest, um, the guy that yeah. came up with this stuff, the guy we're following, uh, his example, like following his example, it could lead us to lose our life, right? Yeah. But this is why Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to first take up your cross ahead of time. You have to decide ahead of time that you're going to die to yourself and you're going to die to the world and you're going to submit your life to Christ. Like this is much more than just saying a prayer. Yeah, I give my life to Christ. It's like, no, I'm going to really actually give my actual life, my living, breathing, you know, the ability to pull air in and out of my actual lungs. I'm going to give that to Jesus. It's beautiful when you have those examples, when it does work out, but it is, you know, this is the real world. Sometimes somebody is committed to violence and you're not going to be able to disarm them. But for me, I I look at that, that as this is what it means to follow Jesus and to to give my life for Jesus. Like if I die because I'm doing something like that, that's what it means to give my life for Christ. That's what it means to truly surrender my life for Christ. And um, anyway, I just, I just, um, I love those kind of stories, but I can't, I can't share them as if to say, and every time you do that, it will always work. Right. Right. And yeah. (laughs) Or even that, you you know, it's interesting because I was just talking about this with a group of, um, women at my church and how we approach, you know, different people on the streets who may be asking for money or food or whatever it may be. And, you know, something that came up, I think, especially as women is really important to, we said, you know, you have to use discernment. And I think that's true, especially for women, because there is a different, there is a different dynamic um, of, you know, putting ourselves at risk and things like that. But in general, this idea of, yeah, using creative means of nonviolence and mm-hmm. not seeing um, fight or flight as the only two responses that we can have yeah. in those scenarios. And I love those stories because I think, like you said, like that is what Jesus would have done. And <laughs> it's so cool to see how that impacted um, mm-hmm. those people. And and it kind of speaks to that holistic understanding of people's stories too, you know, like why are they doing what they're doing and um, yeah. And how would, how would Jesus meet them where they yeah. are? Yeah. And see that the, those examples, um, uh, the good thing in those stories of when they, when it does work and you have those beautiful examples is that, you know, if you kind of like you were saying, when you kind of think about like, well, why, <clears throat> why does it work or why did it work in those situations? I think it's because you are humanizing the other person, right? 
you are yeah. you you even though you're the victim right. you're looking them in the eye you're humanizing them you're saying to them i see this humanity in you and i'm i have empathy and compassion for what is it that puts you in the place that you feel like you need to go and you know mug people or rob people or whatever um right probably really suffering this is probably the only option you can think of right mm-hmm. to take care of your family Right. Um, and so, or to survive. And so, yeah, yeah th- those are, those are, um, beautiful examples. And again, it's really difficult to really do that in the moment. You know, sometimes you're just terrified and <laughs> you just want it to be over, like get out of here and, um, right. you know, let's just get, let's get this transaction finished. Here's my wallet and I'm going to run. Um, <laughs> again, yeah. which makes it difficult to sort of plan out these things. Here's what I'm going to do the next time. Right. <laughs> feels kind of spontaneous in these stories, at least. But Yes, yes. You have to kind of be in that frame of mind. I love it. But I think that's what's so cool. It was kind of this organic, you know, reaction mm-hmm. um, or response. I love the, I really love the, like, home robbery wine story. I think yes. that is so cool. <laughs> that is so Jesus. Like, he totally would have been like, sit down, have a meal. Exactly. It's right. Yeah. Would you like a glass of wine? yeah that was a great story and i will i will tell i won't spoil the rest of it i'll I'll put the link in the group because if you watch the whole thing there's a really cool little ending to it that was unexpected i'll I'll let i'll let people watch that um and i'll put a couple more in there that are really good some of them will make you cry they're really but they're really beautiful um but yeah those are um those are great and i kind of like um like remembering back it's been a couple of years when we did that conference but you know, I kind of wish that we as Christians would do spend more time. Like, you know, we came together to do a conference specifically to talk about this. Like, how do we uh, follow and obey Jesus when he tells us to love our enemies and turn the other cheek? And what, what are the practical ways we can do that? And we had such wonderful conversations and real, very real world conversations. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, some people shared some very real world stories of, of, of both how it Sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't. And um, But yet the fact is that uh, I would really love to see us as Christians and our churches taking this more seriously, like spending more time to really practically talk about how can we love our enemies? How can we right. um, respond in ways that, that point back to Jesus, that are sort of Jesus-informed, Jesus-centric yeah. uh, responses? And I mean, because even if something doesn't work out the way you would hope, like, you know that you're still being faithful to following in the footsteps of Jesus. And I think, yeah, that's the key. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, uh, I live, I I moved back to Texas. So, um, and I don't mean to blame, I'm not, I'm not trying to paint people in Texas with a white brush. (laughs) I just will say a lot of my friends here in Texas who are Christian, um, you know, they, uh, they carry a weapon and they're very open about that. And they're, and they're very vocal about it. Well, if someone ever rolled up on me, you know, I would pop him. And it's like, um, well, see, now I don't know. That's what bothers me. Like, I don't, I don't want to be someone, uh, and I used to be, I mean, uh, I, I, I used to be a member of the NRA and I was like totally into that. I, I, I had a ton of guns and all that. And I would have, I would have been like, I'm going to do that. Is but this now, on another dimension, Keith? I can't yeah. imagine you. <laughs> well, I could I could share pictures of myself in the <laughs> desert with all loaded up with all these guns that I had. Oh my I, gosh! I thought it was so cool. Wow. Um, but I've gotten rid of them now. So like I, because I just don't want that to be an option for me. You know what I mean? I I don't want violence to be an option. So I just I don't do that. But I used yeah. to. So I get it on one level. But um, I guess for me, I when I started 
realizing that I think Jesus really did mean this. And, and I think, um, it's the, um, Benjamin, Benjamin Corey has a really great blog post about this, about how, you know, even if I employ the way of Jesus in, in, in a violent situation and I do love my enemy and I die, how even that is actually better, right? Because the person that, that kills me and they're robbing me or something and they see that I don't respond with violence, that I actually respond with compassion, that I actually do attempt to love them and, and in the process and then they still kill me. Well, now they're going to spend the rest of their life, their life wondering, why did I do that? Yeah. Why did I respond that way? You know, this right. person said they were doing this because Jesus loved them and Jesus loved me and, and that the love of Jesus would make someone behave that way. And wow, why did they do that? Right. And and it would work on them like it would give an opportunity again. It's a, it's still an opportunity for the kingdom of God to break into that situation, into that person's life. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just kind of got to the place where I kind of feel like I that's what I want my story to be. I That's how I want my my Christianity to be reflected. Um, Mm -hmm. So I want to live that out a little more. That's incredible. That's such an incredible testimony. And I, you know, it kind of makes me think back to our episode in this series with Shane Claiborne, because he, he said something about, you know, if the early Christians would have responded to Saul the way that (laughs) we (laughs) respond to people, then we wouldn't have the new Testament, you know, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes. And that's exactly, I think about that a lot. Like when, when, when my Christian friends tell me, well, if someone, you know, knocked on my door and wanted to do violence to me, I'd blow his brains out. Like, well, if you were in the, you were back in the first century and that guy's name was Saul of Tarsus and you blew his brains out. Well, sorry, no new Testament. So you, you cut off the opportunity for that person Mm -hmm. to have an encounter with Christ, to, to experience the same thing that you hopefully have experienced, which is the love of Christ that transforms your heart and, and, you know, makes you this different person. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just want to, I want to be someone who gives opportunity for that and room for that and, yeah. and really still believes and has faith in the power of the Holy spirit to do that in someone's life. And if by my responding in love to that person makes that more possible, which I, I think it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm much more interested in that kind of a response. Yeah, me too. Amen. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so yeah, this is the thing about Bruxy's um, Bruxy's Church. I mean, if uh, you know, they're kind of from the Anabaptist tradition. If you don't know about the Anabaptists, you should look them up. Um, but uh, the Anabaptists were a group of people around the time of the Reformation. So right around the time of when you know Luther is breaking away from the Catholic Church. In fact, the, a lot of his friends who were Anabaptists were the ones that inspired Luther to go ahead and make that shift. And um, so. Anabaptists had a lot to do with even the fact that there was a Reformation. Unfortunately, Luther didn't go as far as the Anabaptists did, which was a very Jesus-centered, um, you know, way of doing things and looking at things. He kind of stopped short of that, um, and and because of that, Anabaptists ended up getting persecuted, sadly, by other Christians, uh, other Protestants, and uh, and put to death, which was again really sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bruxy's Church is in the Anabaptist tradition. And, and it's really refreshing if you go and watch any of their sermons online or mm-hmm. uh, just even read any of Bruxy's books, mm-hmm. you'll start to see that and notice that, how everything they do uh, is very much centered on this sort of Jesus-centric model of following Christ in their daily lives. They take very seriously, you know, this idea of, you know, like, what are we here for, right? And so Bruxy and the, and the people at his church, you know, in the, at the front of their minds – 
is every time they come together is we're following Jesus. And what that, what does that mean? It means we are people who love our enemies. We're people who bless those who curse us. We're people that care for the poor. And um, that's the main thing that they're about. And I love that. I love the emphasis on sort of the orthopraxy mm-hmm. of faith and how we practice our faith and um, yep. less, less of an attention on orthodoxy, which is sort of like we're in some kind of a theological school and we learn the answers to the test questions. And <laughs> it would be great if they could just like totally work together, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, I think that would be the best. Like, that would be it, best. <laughs> it doesn't have to be an either or. Right, uh, right. But it should absolutely be um, a balance of, okay, if this is your orthodoxy, then what does that look like? How do you live that out? Right. And, um, yeah. Yep. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes and Spotify. And for more information about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org.